1: You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Clement Valendingham was born in New Lisbon, Ohio in 1820. He received his education through homeschooling until he attended Jefferson College in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. After an argument with the school's president, he left the college without finishing his degree. At the time aspiring lawyers didn't need a degree to practice all they had to do was pass the bar exam vlandingham passed the bar and set up his law firm in dayton ohio his lack of a college degree also didn't prevent him from being elected to the ohio legislature in 1845 or from being elected into the house of representatives shortly before the civil war although valendingham lived in a pro-union state he was staunchly pro-slavery His beliefs on the subject were so strong that he looked for any way to oppose President Abraham Lincoln on every military bill, and frequently accused the president of prolonging the war for his own gain. As the leader of the Copperheads, a group of like-minded politicians, Vallandigham believed that the president and the abolitionists were destroying the nation. In their opinion, the war was completely unjustified. Though Landingham lost his bid for re-election in 1862, he remained popular with anti-war factions and was considered a candidate for the Presidency. Those aspirations ended when he entered the public sector and continued his anti-war rhetoric. His rants violated Ohio's General Order 38, which banned anyone from declaring sympathy for the enemy. Thus, he was arrested in 1863 during the trial he voiced his opinions in sympathy for the confederacy as a result the court ordered vlendingham expelled to the south however despite the court order his strong opinions and his affiliation with the copperheads the confederates didn't exactly give him a warm welcome it took some time for them to trust him even after he ran for governor of ohio in absentia vlendingham lost the election but managed to return to ohio quietly after the war, he continued his crusade against the rights of black Americans. He ran for the Senate and then the House of Representatives, losing both times. He returned to practicing law, taking on a murder case. His client, one Thomas McGeehan, had been accused of murdering a man by the name of Thomas Myers. Valendingham's defense was simple. His client couldn't possibly be guilty, since Myers had accidentally shot himself. The witnesses stated the two men had been enemies. They had been gambling, and though the details were murky, Myers wound up dead, and everyone pointed to McGeehan. Valendingham insisted that the evidence was weak. He fired rounds into a piece of fabric to demonstrate the placement of gunpowder residue at close range, matching the powder formation on Myers' clothing. After the demonstration, a companion reminded him that there were still three live rounds in the gun's chambers. Valendingham assured him that his knowledge and comfort around firearms would prevent him from accidentally discharging it. Valendingham found a package containing Myers' unloaded pistol waiting for him at the hotel and placed it on his nightstand alongside his own gun. Then he summoned the rest of the lawyers to his room for one last reenactment. He grabbed a pistol from the nightstand and placed it in his pocket. As he withdrew it, he demonstrated how Myers had held the gun, then pulled the trigger. Unfortunately, he had grabbed the loaded gun and cried out that he'd shot himself. The shot proved fatal. The court acquitted McGeehan, Blending him had proven his client's innocence. It might not have been the most intelligent of defenses, but it certainly wasn't the worst. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. It was the Roaring Twenties. Ruth Snyder was a blonde, pretty, 32-year-old homemaker, described as having a playful personality. She'd been married to Albert for 12 years, and the two had a young daughter, Lorraine, and an eight-room home in Queens Village, New York. A 42-year-old Albert worked as an art editor for a magazine about motorboats and did not share his wife's playful personality. Most women dreaded him, his idea of fun was to slap his wife and nine-year-old daughter around. He took every opportunity to let Ruth know he'd never forgiven her for not giving him a son. When he did hand out compliments, they were about his late ex-fiancée, Jessie Guichard. He kept a picture of his beloved on a wall in the home and frequently mentioned that Jessie had been the finest woman he'd ever known. To add insult to injury, when Albert purchased a boat, he named it Jessie. Understandably, Ruth's love and devotion toward her husband turned sour. On top of being verbally, emotionally, and physically cruel, he drank a lot. Uh, So much so that Albert took to brewing beer in his basement, which wasn't exactly legal during the Prohibition era. When he tired of beer, he visited the local bootlegger for stronger stuff. In 1927, women like Ruth didn't have many options. Uh, Women were considered property of sorts, first belonging to their fathers and then to their husbands. They had little to no rights to their own finances. In the U.S., it wouldn't be until the 1960s before women were allowed to open a bank account on their own. They weren't allowed to have a credit card without a husband's signature until 1974. Single women need not apply. Men earned more for the same jobs. Companies openly overlooked women in favor of men when it came to hiring, until President Kennedy signed a law prohibiting such tactics in 1964. Until 1920, women hadn't been allowed to vote. For those who worked, any paycheck that they brought home immediately belonged to their husband. The only financial wealth a woman had was her jewelry. For many women, marriage meant a lifetime of love and financial security. For others, marriage was a prison. In the 20s, society frowned on divorce, which usually entailed proof of adultery or abandonment. And in society's view, if Ruth filed, she was breaking the family apart. The words till death do us part had real meaning for Ruth. She was destined for a lifetime of misery and abuse. And like other women in her shoes, she did her best to occupy her time outside the home when possible. Since 1925, having lunch with her friends in Manhattan had become her only escape. Once she dropped Lorraine off at school, she caught a train to the city to spend the day. In the afternoon, she boarded another train back home. And during those lunches at the counter in a Fifth Avenue restaurant, Ruth met Judd Gray, another regular. And by most accounts, Judd wasn't the most memorable man. He was short, curly haired, and wore thick horn-rimmed glasses that gave him an owlish appearance. Judd worked as a traveling salesman for a corset and bra company, although he conducted most of his work from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. He spent his spare time as a member of an elk's lodge in New Jersey, and he taught Sunday school. The two quickly struck up a friendship. They talked of family and life, and before long, Judd confided that he was also in an unhappy marriage. Over several weeks, the growing attraction and tension between them increased. They began to flirt. By the end of the summer, Ruth and Judd took the flirtations even further and started a fiery and all-consuming affair. Albert never came home during the day, providing the couple with a convenient place to meet. Other times, Ruth met her new lover at the Waldorf. Meanwhile, little Lorraine entertained herself by riding along with the elevator operators until her mother returned for her. Judd was smitten with Ruth, who seemingly couldn't get enough of him either. She called him Loverboy, among other pet names. Over the next year and a half, the affair turned riskier, and the lovers grew bolder in their liaisons. On Sunday, March 20th, 1927, Lorraine Snyder made a frantic phone call to the next-door neighbor, Mrs. Harriet Mulhauser. Lorraine's cries that her mother was sick urged Harriet to hurry to the Snyder home. When Harriet entered, she had no idea what to expect. Moans from an upstairs bedroom met her at the door. She ran up the stairs to find Ruth lying on a bed with a loosened gag around her neck. Her feet had been bound, but her hands were free. Ruth moaned that she had been hit on the head. Unsure of what had happened or where Albert was, Harriet told Lorraine to go and get Mr. Mulhauser and then to wait outside. Louis Mulhauser arrived moments later. He found Albert in another room, lying face-first under a pile of blankets on a twin bed. His hands and feet had been bound. The blood on the pillows and the wire around his neck made it clear someone had strangled him. Lewis also noted a revolver lay next to the body. He covered Albert with a sheet and called for the police and a doctor for Ruth. The doctor examined Ruth while she told him what had happened. Though she insisted she'd been hit on the head, he couldn't find any evidence of an injury. Two officers arrived shortly afterward. The house appeared to have been ransacked, and the officers thought the Snyders had been victims of a burglary gone wrong. There had been reports of a strange man prowling around the neighborhood, and the Snyder House in particular. Detectives Frank Hayner and Harry Krause arrived shortly after 8 a.m. to take over the case. The doctor had finished his exam of Ruth and Albert and gave the detectives his findings. Ruth's calm demeanor seemed off, and he couldn't find any signs of injury. Albert had been dead for about six hours. He noted heavy bruising on his face, which indicated blunt force trauma. The doctor wasn't sure whether Albert had died due to that trauma or to strangulation. While an ambulance took Albert to the morgue, the detectives questioned Ruth. They also noted how calm she seemed, given her account of what had happened. Ruth claimed she'd been knocked out. The detectives had more questions than answers. Why had someone bound Ruth's feet but not her hands? And they couldn't find an injury why hadn't she gone for help herself. Something wasn't right. Detectives Hainer and Kraus called for assistance. While other detectives began a thorough search of the house and property, Hainer and Kraus took Ruth to the police station for further questioning. She repeated the story that she and Albert had attended a bridge party late into the night. When they arrived home, they immediately went to bed. Sometime in the middle of the night, She heard a noise and went to investigate. Ruth told them that an enormous Italian thug attacked her and hit her on the head before she could scream for Albert. Ruth claimed that the man must have robbed them and killed Albert. She took the time to describe valuable pieces of jewelry and expensive fur coats she owned. Given the doctor's findings, the detectives thought that the attacker's description played too heavily on the general racism against Italian immigrants of the time and it didn't take the detectives long to find more problems with Ruth's story. Albert's gold pocket watch had been found next to his deathbed. They also found Ruth's jewelry wrapped in a rag and stuffed under the mattress, and her fur coat tucked away in a trunk in the basement. But most damning was the toolbox they'd found. A large iron sash weight had been buried beneath an assortment of hammers and screwdrivers, and the weight had blood on it. To say Ruth was the number one suspect would be an understatement. They told her what they would found and prompted her to confess. After a couple of hours of intense questioning, Ruth slipped and gave them a name, Judd Gray. Then she refused to answer any more questions. Police quickly arrested Judd. They were not surprised to hear that he had a different story. He was innocent, he claimed. In fact, like Albert, he also claimed to be one of Ruth's victims. She'd seduced him and made him an unwilling accomplice to the murder plot. Within hours, the detectives had their killers. But the two lovers weren't done with the details just yet. Judd claimed that Ruth had been the mastermind. She had taken out an insurance policy with a double indemnity clause. If Albert died from an act of violence, Ruth stood to get twice the money. While Ruth had bought the iron weight, he had been seduced into buying chloroform. He told the detectives that Ruth had told him to smash Albert's head with the weight, but he was so frightened that he couldn't do it. He said Ruth grabbed the weight and eagerly did the job herself, striking Albert on the side of the head. The blow knocked Albert unconscious, and Judd admitted dragging him to the bed. He also admitted to using the wire to ensure he was dead. The entire murder seemed to happen in a daze, he told the detectives. He'd been entirely under Ruth's spell. Prosecutors decided to try the pair together instead of individually. Reporters flocked to the courtroom. While wives killing abusive husbands for money wasn't exactly new, competing newspapers saw a sensational story tabloids were quick to add creative details in their retelling. As they put it, Ruth the Ruthless was a femme fatale who had it all, a house, car, money, before taking on a lover and seducing him into killing her husband. Journalist Damon Runyon thought the two killers were about as dumb as any had ever seen and began calling the incident the Dumbbell Murder. The New York Times kept the story on the front page as the trial continued. It began on April 18th of 1927 and became nothing less than a circus. 1,500 people crammed themselves into the courtroom. Outside, vendors sold sash-weight replica pins, and food vendors hiked up prices to the thousands of people waiting outside the courtroom. celebrities, from renowned historians and film producers to the nation's elite, reserved seating inside. Among them were songwriter Irving Berlin, and mystery novelist Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Though Judd and Ruth were tried together and were at the same table, they each retained their own lawyer. For hours, each lawyer worked to sway the all-male jury that the other defendant in the case was the more guilty party. Most felt sympathetic toward Judd's confessions. He told the courtroom that Ruth completely seduced him, earning him the nickname The Putty Man, Heap said that he was helpless whenever she drew his face close to hers and looked deeply into his eyes. Judd sobbed when he told the jury how she'd pressured him into doing her dirty work. The plot went sideways when he arrived that night, and he'd struck Albert in self-defense. In turn, Ruth fainted whenever the prosecution brought out the most gruesome of the details. Her attorney told the courtroom that such gore made his client faint easily. Judd and Ruth exchanged barbs and accusations, dividing the court on who had been ultimately responsible for Albert's death until the prosecution brought a toxicologist to the stand. Using only the facts from pathology and chemistry, Alexander Gettler systematically laid out what had happened to Albert that night. The police had found a bottle of whiskey on Judd on the night of his arrest. he had told detectives that Ruth asked him to dispose of the bottle, Lab results showed that the whiskey contained so much bichloride of mercury that it was undrinkable. Knowing Albert's penchant for drinking heavily had given Ruth the idea to poison her husband. However, the acrid, foul taste would have undoubtedly made Albert spit the drink out. Albert had already been drinking, and he had consumed so much bootleg whiskey that it would have been unlikely that he could stand, much less attack Judd. And if the whiskey wasn't enough, the chloroform they found in his system was. Though the iron weight had fractured Albert's skull and the wire had cut off his last breaths, Albert was already a dying man. That bootleg whiskey combined with the heavy amount of chloroform had been fatal. Gettler testified that Ruth and Judd might have gotten away with murder if they had just let the whiskey and chloroform run their course. Ninety minutes later, the jury returned a guilty verdict for Judd and Ruth. Both were sentenced to death at Sing Sing. The story continued to dominate headlines for weeks. One reporter noted that, in an odd twist, Albert's beloved ex fiancee, Jesse Guichard, and Ruth's affair partner, Judd Gray, shared the same initials. It turned out that this twist had helped the detectives with the case. They'd come across some papers with the initials J.G., but they didn't belong to Judd. Before her death, Jesse had sent Albert love letters on monogrammed stationery. Albert had kept letterhead from his beloved Jesse. Of course, the detectives didn't know that when they showed it to Ruth and asked who J.G. was. In a moment of panic, she'd asked why they were looking at Judd in connection with her husband's death. On the day of Ruth's execution at Sing Sing Prison, Photography was prohibited in the execution chamber. One creative reporter rigged a camera under his clothing. At the moment of Ruth's execution, he snapped a single photo. The Daily News used the image and the headline, Dead. The paper sold out in 15 minutes. The dumbbell murder had been a sensational story, but with the case over and Judd and Ruth executed, the papers returned to other news. Over time, the story faded from most people's memories. Murder for money was hardly new or unheard of, and true crime stories have seemingly fascinated us all. While plenty of reporters covering the trial simply looked for enough headline-worthy material before moving on to their next assignment, one of those reporters never forgot it. James M. Kane said the trial had been larger than life and stranger than fiction, He'd always wanted to write a novel like F. Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway, and The Murder gave him an idea. Over the years, he had written a few plays and novels without much success. But The Betrayals and Murder, in this case, inspired him to try once more. In 1934, he made the bestsellers list with The Postman Always Rings Twice. Characters Frank and Cora begin an affair, and soon plot the murder of Cora's older husband, Nick. The lover's first attempt, striking Nick with a blunt object, fails. He recovers, but has amnesia. The second attempt, a fake car accident, works. The two killers stand trial, each blaming the other. Kane wrote a twist to the ending, which I won't divulge here in case you haven't read it or seen the films based on it. At the height of the book's popularity, Boston banned it due to the amount of sex and violence it contained for the time. And as popular as this book was… Another became an even larger success. Using the case and trial again as inspiration, he wrote Double Indemnity, first publishing it as a serialized story in Liberty Magazine in 1936, and then as a novel in 1943. The plot revolves around a woman who seduces an insurance salesman to help her kill her husband. Like Judd, the man becomes so entangled in the fog of the affair, he feels compelled to help commit the murder. And just like the dumbbell murder, the plan backfires, pitting the couple against each other. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Every once in a while, a new story stands out far from the rest. Such is the case of the Denver Spider-Man. Helen and Philip Peters had lived in their Denver, Colorado neighborhood for a long time. The neighbors, young and old alike, loved them, During the fall of 1941, a 64-year-old Helen spent five weeks recovering in the hospital after breaking her hip. Every morning after breakfast, Philip went to visit, returning in time for dinner each night. To keep Philip from eating alone and ensure he didn't have to cook, neighbors took turns inviting him to dinner. When Philip failed to arrive at a neighbor's house on October 17th, they began to worry. The neighbor checked on Philip, knocking and trying the door soon, more neighbors gathered outside the dark house. All the windows and doors were locked, but a young girl found a loose window screen and managed to pry the window open and climb inside. After a couple of moments, the neighbors heard her screams. The girl threw the door open and ran out. Inside, among the blood splatter, lay Philip's body. The police arrived, confident the killer was still inside. Except the house was empty. Whoever killed Philip Peters bludgeoned him to death using two cast-iron shakers. The killer took the time to wash one of the shakers and left behind a damp, blood-stained dish towel. The attack had been merciless. It appeared Philip had tried to flee his attacker. A blood splatter was found throughout the home, and they estimated he'd been struck 37 times. As the weeks went on, the investigation stalled, and when Helen returned home, the housekeeper and neighbors stayed with her as much as possible they couldn't stay forever though helen was uncomfortable in the house not just because of the murder the strange things kept happening even before helen arrived home from the hospital and neighbors noticed the lights would come on in the house one saw a ghostly face in the window the residents along the street began to whisper that the house was haunted Helen frequently called the police to check up on the case and to report missing food, strange sounds in the walls, objects out of place. One night, she fell again, fracturing her leg. The in-home nurse also heard rattling in the walls. Once a specter appeared on the back stairs. It chattered its teeth at the nurse, scaring her off. She promptly quit, leaving Helen in the care of a neighbor. The neighbor spotted the ghost standing at the base of the stairs one night. It vanished when she screamed. Police kept watch on the house, but never saw anyone or anything strange. Eventually, Helen left, despite having lived much of her life in the home. On July 30th of 1942, a couple of police officers saw a pale face looking out of a window and ran inside to investigate. When the men reached the top of the stairs, closet door swung shut. Unwilling to let the intruder escape, they opened the door in time to see two feet disappear into a tiny trap door in the ceiling. They grabbed the legs and pulled the man out of his hiding place. One of them commented that a human would need to be a spider to fit into such a small opening. The pale, gray-skinned man wore tattered clothing. He was impossibly thin, which explained how he fit into a hole too small for most adults. During questioning, the officers learned that Theodore Conies had been living in the Peters' house since 1941. Conies said that when he was a teen, he took guitar lessons from Philip Peters, and they fed him dinner. Twenty years later, houseless and broke, he returned to the Peters' home to see if they might still offer him food. Coney's broke in when he found no one home. After stealing some food, he decided to sleep there. His search of the home revealed the trapdoor. Conies managed to squeeze up into the ceiling and decided that he might as well stay. It all seemed to work until Philip Peters caught him in the kitchen one evening. Philip fought back before retreating. Conies admitted to killing him, cleaning up and returning to his hiding place. After his trial, he told reporters that he felt safe in prison and that it was a better home than he'd had in years. And Coney's enjoyed the rest of his years in prison until he died in 1967. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit grimandmile.com. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com.